And we're live. I'm Steven Zhao, and this is the Blood and Oil Podcast, where we learn from yesterday's mistakes and discuss solutions to tomorrow's problems. With me today is Shahrir Pasandide, a scholar and academic from the George Washington University, all the way here from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Sean. And I think we were just talking about how you had a planned trip to uh, RAF Gosford, right? Yes, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, that's my trip planned for tomorrow. Yeah. So missiles, that's your big uh, focus in scholarship, right? Or equipment in general, you were telling me. Military technology in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dissertation is focusing on that. And uh, advances in missile technology are uh, an important part of that issue, of course. Uh, particularly uh, in the last several decades, where missiles have replaced other military equipment uh, in many roles, such as uh, in air defense. Uh, air defense guns are now increasingly rare. They still have a role to play, but uh, missiles have largely replaced them. And you know now provide air defense a much greater range than any gun can provide. I think you were telling me you had a lot of scholarship uh, in the pipeline, so some of them might be sensitive uh, things to discuss because you don't want to let the ideas out. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, current affairs that involve, you know, military conflict, uh, a lot of them appearing in areas I think are not your primary interest, but you can still give a comment on. Yes. Yes. And uh, so I think in terms of... Flashpoints. Uh, you know, the United States was uh, trying to stir up a lot of uh, conflict with Venezuela in the past uh, few months. Um, in terms of you know military capabilities, there, do you think it's uh, are, are there any com- compatible uh, equipment from the uh, Venezuelan military that can actually offer any kind of threat, or is it basically a cakewalk for the Americans? Uh, it won't be a cakewalk in the sense that Venezuela is a large country. Yeah. And uh, assuming we're talking about a full kinetic operation here. Yeah. You know, something along the lines of what happened in Libya, uh, you know, where the goal is to uh, strike the regime its command and control centers, including, you know, the military's command control network, radio relays, etc., as well as uh, major military facilities which, A, can pose a threat even theoretically, theoretically, uh, to American and any Allied aircraft involved in the operation, and be military assets which the U.S. Uh, thinks may be used against civilians or against U.S. say ground forces that are even special forces that are being used to like uh, help coordinate airstrikes. Uh, then those things are more likely to be struck. Uh, there are some Venezuelan capabilities which would likely be affected. Uh, there are a handful of submarines that they operate, uh, German built, West German built to be precise. Uh, they are getting old, they don't operate very frequently, uh, the crews are unlikely to have that training, but uh, assuming that they are both at sea, they will, will uh, likely attract considerable American uh, aircraft activities, anti-submarine warfare aircraft, and if they're at port, uh, just given the latent threat that they would uh, present the U.S. Navy, uh, they would likely be targeted okay. uh, for airstrikes. Uh, that is very conceivable. There are some, there's like two dozen or so, uh, Venezuelan combat aircraft, fighter aircraft, uh, which, you know, these are relatively modern aircraft, they have missiles which work, uh, the U.S. military likes to destroy threats rather than face even a slim probability that they could be used against them, so they are likely to be attacked on the ground, uh, and there's some ground-based air defenses, but for a country the size of Venezuela, 
it's not much, but likely the capital of Caracas will be uh, well defended, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And so there might be uh, what is called a suppression of uh, enemy air defenses or a seed uh, campaign against those facilities. But it would likely be localized to uh, the area around the capital. So it'll take some effort, but uh, in the end, probably not much of a troublesome affair. Not for the U.S. military, no. unless the U.S. military is involved in another war. Of course, it's involved in Afghanistan and elsewhere, but another major war against major the war. state. Yeah. But this might be touching on your research topic now, because... Hold on. The question of uh, military conflicts by the United States, because I, I, you know that's probably one of the most... I- interesting topics right now in terms of military affairs is uh you know the impending conflicts that uh, may or may not come another area of course is the persian gulf I believe with uh, you know the recent uh, incident with the saudi tankers driving up tensions and uh, there's been for almost a year now i think very strong signals from the american military that they would well the american defense establishment that they would like to do something to Iran, not sure what yet, but uh, it's been on their radar. Um, what are your thoughts there? Uh, there's a good deal of posturing on all sides. Yeah. There was this incident with the tankers in the Gulf recently, and that can be seen as an escalation. Uh, details are not uh, very clear. Initially, there was talk of mines being used, the US military now, well, the US government now, seems to think that uh, the Iranian government had a hand in it, or to its elements of the Iranian government, namely the uh, IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, there is that, but uh, there hasn't been a full disclosure of what has been going on. Also, given the politicization of uh, intelligence that is under, that is reportedly happening under the Trump administration, uh, with the National Security Council in particular, under uh, John Bolton, becoming very politicized, it's not always clear to outside observers what is fact and what is fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's In the world of intelligence gathering, there's many small snippets of information, uh, many of which can be ambiguous. You know, they are not definitive always. And even things which are definitive uh, must be interpreted in a broader context, even if it was done by the Iranian military. This does not necessarily mean that it was centrally orchestrated. Uh, it could have been a local commander doing something, perhaps the behest of members of the leadership who are opposed to the government's overall policy of non-open confrontation with the United States. Uh, So a lot of things have to go in there before we can come to anything approaching a high confidence uh, conclusion as to what happened. Uh, And it is unclear that the US government in its current form, this National Security Council, the Trump administration under John Bolton in particular, whether uh, that body can truly engage in, you know, careful, deliberative assessment and look at the facts only, rather than projecting uh, perceived malign intentions of Iran into the situation. On the politicalization, how far do you think it's gone? I mean, outside observers, the best we can do is read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the Washington <laughs> Post, and but if you do that, it looks like there's a lot of politicization going on, Yeah. Uh, such that... Uh, Political decision-making is driving the uh, review of war plans with Iran, for example. This came out recently. Uh, it drove, apparently, uh, 
the re-examination of contingency plans for Venezuela, which we just mm. discussed. And, you know, to a degree, these things are part of the normal bureaucratic procedure. But when political appointees push for them, and the, uh, political appointees who have a track record of being very ideological, particularly over these issues, you know, individuals who talk in terms of an axis of evil and so on, uh, these are unlikely to be purely bureaucratic procedures of, you know, updating existing plans, you know, which is completely yeah. normal. So militaries and intelligence agencies and national security councils do around the world, so that's their job. They make plans for contingencies. But to update them, uh, to update them, of course, is also normal. You want to keep, you know, you can never look every now and again when there's major change. But at some level, these uh, also respond to political decisions, and right now, the helmsmen. Uh, difficult to have a lot of confidence in them, given their... Yes. Uh, but that's also an interesting point, because if John Bolton is the major driver in the ideology, his ideology is very different from the ideology that Trump ran his campaign. Yes, and this has shown up recently in several instances, uh, with uh, Donald Trump going on, on the record last week, or, I believe, uh, saying that he was open to having uh, uh, conversations with the Iranian government, which is very peculiar. Uh, not exactly the kind of thing John Bolton, you know, would be saying based on his uh, record of uh, yes, you know, po- policy preferences toward Iran. Uh, Trump met Kim Jong Un. Yes, uh, Bol- Bolton very, you know, was not particularly keen on that process. It seems, although he had to play a part in it, of course. Uh, there's yeah, there's a lot of things going on where uh, John Bolton is much more hawkish, and. Uh, more inclined to pursue confrontation and more aggressive policies than President Trump uh, is or seems to be. So that is a very peculiar phenomenon. Just going back to the Iranian uh, tensions, if the United States were to get involved in military military conflict there, would it be similar to their previous Middle Eastern adventures uh, because Iran is definitely a whole nother beast altogether compared to the previous countries that America has gotten involved with, correct? Yes. Yes. So how would that pan out? To me, this is a question of what kind of conflict are we talking about? Uh, airstrikes against nuclear facilities. Not, I'm not suggesting that these wouldn't escalate uh, you know, to, be, to a conflict beyond that. Uh, the enemy has a vote, uh, so to speak, and for the United States to plan on only doing airstrikes against nuclear facilities, uh, that's a nonsensical proposition. Uh, Iran determines how far how far and how uh, long this escalates. And if Iran decides to respond by, respond by doing nothing, well, then it ends. Then the, the, you know, that's the best case scenario for the U.S. But that's unlikely to happen. So there's all kinds of likely escalations, uh, targeting of American troops in Iraq, for example. Mm. How would the U.S. respond, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's just on the minimal end of the spectrum. The more maximal end would be uh, attacks on American air, uh, air bases in the Gulf states, which would, you know, be facilitating these airstrikes on Iran. Uh, that's in, to use the American globalism, uh, 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 that's an entirely different ballgame. Yeah. Uh, that is very likely to result in a much larger conflict. Uh, there's another type of conflict scenario, which starts off more maximally, which is more of a, you know, uh, th- what some people in the Trump administration seem to think is prudent. Uh, 
you know, break the door down, topple the government, target the leadership, and then the people are expected to, you know, stand up against the regime, start a revolution, and a pro-Western, uh, pro-American government will take place. Leaving aside whether this is politically realistic at all, uh, that would start off as a much more uh, maximalist campaign. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in such a scenario, there will almost certainly be a maximalist uh, Iranian response. Yeah. So that would uh, start off as a very large conflict. So what would the plan be there? Do they, do they want to put MEK in power, or uh, who is the likely well, candidate? <laughs> that that exiled party uh, does have its uh, supporters in the Trump administration. Uh, there was a conference in Warsaw a few months ago mm. on the future of Iran. No, future of Middle East security was all about Iran. Iran was not invited. It's a very peculiar event. And uh, yeah, MEK was there. And uh, members of the Trump administration and people affiliated with it. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, Republican uh, foreign policy and security policy and community have also met the... Uh, the exiled uh, king, I guess is the right word, uh, of Iran. Uh, oh, the Yes. Yeah. Uh, interesting stuff there as well. But uh, a lot of this seems to be smoke and mirrors and posturing. Mm. Uh, it is unclear whether the U.S. government at the highest levels truly believes that either of these two options, which are mutually incompatible, <laughs> should be emphasized. Yeah. And that probably says a lot that the fact that they're pursuing two groups which do not like one another, and whose only common, uh, whose only overlap in interest is <laughs> opposing the current regime. Uh, so this does not seem to be uh, centrally fought and orchestrated mm. by the Trump administration. Instead, uh, they're agents of the Trump administration, you know, political appointees of relatively senior position who seem to be able to do what they think needs to be done and Mr. Trump is not keeping uh, tight control of his mm. state. Well, you're based in D.C., so what's the mood there right now on the security situation? Because it seems like there's a lot of tensions America is having for, for, in a lot of different places. I, I've, we've discussed Venezuela already, Iran already. Um, tensions are rap, uh, ratcheting up with China. There's the whole North Korean process. Don't they feel like uh, they're kind of all over the place? They do. Uh, I mean, this, of course, isn't entirely new for the United States. For the security policy community, certainly not. Uh, over the past two decades, for example, uh, the past decade, let's do that, there has been a significant minority which has you know, never stopped thinking about Russia, whether in the nuclear arm or the conventional or both. Mm-hmm. And those are different groups, but they've coalesced in the past several years. Uh, the China, uh, the, the grouping uh, which has been concerned about China has also been very large and has only grown now. It's probably dominant. Uh, if you get all these individuals in one big conference room and you ask them to vote like what they think the most pressing thing is, I imagine the majority would say respond to China, mm-hmm. whether framed as an economic threat or a security threat or both, uh, and for some even an ideological threat, as a threat to democracy. Uh, yeah, but yes, uh, the notion of overstretch is there uh, amongst people who look at the defense budget and military spending of the U.S. and its allies. There is, seems to be some of a consensus that not enough is being spent. Uh, this is curious in some respects because how much should be spent? 
you know. So, sorry, just to clarify. Sure. The Allies aren't spending enough, or is it that uh, the United States is not spending enough? For some people in the D.C. security policy community, if the Allies aren't spending enough, then the U.S. has to spend more. What is unclear to me is whether the individuals who espouse such views think that uh, if, the, if the American Allies spend more, that the U.S. should cut back. This is unclear to me. I don't think that's how they view it. Uh, rather, they think that allies should be doing more to add, contribute to the overall effort, rather than the U.S. perhaps making more maximalist, shall we say, increases in its, its own spending. I guess everybody just wants more money. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, if you're in the security policy community, I guess you will want a bigger defense budget. Yes, the incentive structures of the D.C. think tank world are very interesting. Uh, a lot of these studies are sponsored, and the programs are sponsored by corporate donors yeah. uh, in the more ideological of these think tanks, of which there are several, uh, both left-wing and right-wing. Uh, there are wealthy benefactors who fund specific programs, yes. uh, projects, shall we say, uh, some of which are much more overtly political and partisan in mm-hmm. orientation than others. And that drives many things. But... Uh, and, you know, if you look at think tank reports, they all present strategies, you know, seven points, nine points, four point, five points, whatever, strategies for to do something. And uh, this is in response to your previous question. Also, there have been some reports in the past two years or so looking at notions of, uh, let's call it strategic solvency. You know, is the U.S. doing and spending enough to deal with all the threats that it's facing? And, of course, as you mentioned, uh, the list of threats that are the U.S. is perceived to face and must respond to has only grown. Uh, a common theme in the past two decades since 9-11, but, you know, the past few years, the number of cases have grown. Uh, the solution for most of these strategies can be best summarized by more. More money, more troops, more planes, more ships, more intelligence, more allied spending, you name it. Uh, the solution to everything is more, and I think part of the reason is this gets back to the incentive structures. The way to have an honest debate about strategy is to say, okay, these are the threats we face, we prioritize the threats, and we prioritize the things we want to do. Yeah. Because out of recognition that you can't do everything, certainly not at once, perhaps even ever at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first you do the, uh, you know, you look at the threats and requirements you prioritize, and then you allocate. And inherent in allocating resources and the conditions of scarcity is to allocate less to other things. Yeah. Uh, but that is not how people, many people in the DC community think. For example, people who say the US needs a larger Navy, some of them will say the US Air Force should, you know, not do a new procurement program for X, mm-hmm. but few of them would openly say at least, uh, that the U.S. Air Force should like have its budget cut in half and that budget be given to the Navy. Yeah. Or vice versa. And I, the vice versa point is like, uh, should the U.S. Navy continue to have so many aircraft carriers? Mm. Um, should uh, U.S. Air Force uh, long-range bombers replace some of that, those missions that the carriers fulfill? Uh, but, yeah, instead many reports say more of this, more of that. Or, you know, keep this at the same level, but throw more money at some at a specific capability or such capabilities. Uh, so more is the common theme. 
of the DC uh, security policy community. Yeah. That's the solution to everything is just more. Funny enough, though, you do live in Washington, D.C., and I, th- I think in our previous conversations, you've uh, pointed out at the uh, you know, vast inequalities within the city. Um, as somebody who's living in America and also in the security policy community, is there a bit of a disconnect between you know, all these uh, D.C. think tank folks asking for more and more and more? And uh, the perce- per- perhaps the general perception that, uh, well, the United States is running short-term resources. There are two disconnects, at least. And I should note that this is not something I focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, I focus on military issues, but I don't focus on U.S. national security decision-making per se, nor do I focus on uh, the domestic politics of U.S. foreign policy yes. and security policy, which are two sides of the same coin. Uh, the first issue is uh, do most Americans and I mean Americans as specific individuals Americans as uh, constituent social groups, church groups people who meet in community centers for bingo, uh, people who meet on weekends for a birthday party or just to catch up with friends do those individuals, those groupings of individuals and these individuals uh, themselves are they equally concerned or anything near equally concerned about Russia, beyond election hacking, shall we say, mm-hmm. about China, about North Korea, about Iran, about Venezuela. And you see the list keeps going on and on yes, and on. Yes, yes. And that seems doubtful. Uh, most people have plenty of other things to deal with in life and in a country with the inequalities of America, the absence of a social security uh, uh, net. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot to think about for yes, most yes, Americans, uh, no matter how well the economy has been doing the past few years. There's a lot of things to deal with. So it seems doubtful that most Americans think of all these issues and consider them to be very important. Yes. Uh, so there is that disconnect. The second disconnect is the financial aspect, mm-hmm. uh, the resource allocation. There is a tendency, uh, it will be unfair for me to characterize the entire community this way. Uh, I should note that I just the broad brushstroke characterizations of the DC community, uh, security policy community as wanting more and saying more of something is the answer for everything. I think that's a fair characterization for the vast majority of individuals in the community. What follows, however, I'm not sure is uh, warrant such a generalization, but uh, here, here it is anyway. You'll often find discussion of the, in the, the US defense budget, you know, how it's increasing, can it be sustained, how much it should increase, how much it can be increased. And there were individuals who were concerned about the national debt. Yes. And the interest servicing on that in particular, mm-hmm. which if I recall correctly, under uh, uh, Congressional Budget Office estimates, which are held in very high regard, not these are obviously nonpartisan, uh, within a decade, uh, that will be the single highest expenditure and will far outstrip defense spending of the wow. US government. Uh, I did my own back of the envelope calculations last year using uh, 2017 U.S. defense budget figures and looking at debt servicing for that uh, fiscal year for the federal government. And I came to the estimate that, uh, this is imperfect, but uh, just hear it out. The U.S. spent like 700-something billion dollars, I forget the exact number, on defense. Mm -hmm. And given the size of the federal deficit and the uh, uh, debt servicing, there's like a $50 billion additional cost in interest, if you follow what I mean. 
So $50 billion off of the debt that is being incurred by defense. Well, the entire budget is in deficit. The federal yes, budget is in yes, deficit, yeah. which means it's being funded by, uh, you know, uh, by borrowed money, which on which the U.S. government by interest. So basically, given the percentage of the, the DOD budget as a percentage of federal spending in that year, and you compare that with oh. how much... So there's like a $50 billion of interest or go to help pay for DOD's chunk of the deficit, if you right. see what I mean. I see what you're talking about now. Yeah, so, but yeah. that's, that's um, uh, of course, the deficit is a year-on-year -year thing. Yeah. I'm talking about the entire debt, but eventually the national account is the national account. Yes, yes. Uh, money is fungible. You know, you can cut defense spending, pay down debt. You can run up debt if you have major threats, pay it down exactly. later, but that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, so this gets back to uh, the second characterization uh, I was making. There are individuals in the U.S. who uh, talk about entitlements. Mm -hmm. uh, Social Security, spending, Medicare, Medicaid, you see the, where this is going. There are some who say that those programs have to be cut to help the defense budget. Stay the course, perhaps not even increase, which yeah. I always find peculiar given the first characterization I made, which is that yeah. most Americans having plenty of things to deal with in everyday life probably don't think as much or as seriously uh, about the many threats which a DC policy community claims that the US faces. Perhaps correctly, but uh, these things are not as salient for all individuals. At least all these topics are not mm -hmm. equally salient on every given day for every ind individual American citizen of a voting age. I imagine if you do uh, public polling, which I have not seen on this particular issue, perhaps it exists, most Americans would say that, uh, you know, increased defense spending, sure, why not? But the problem with opinion polling, it's, it's largely a function, it's an artifact of the question you give. Yes. And the information you provide the survey respondent. So if you tell individuals that for every additional dollar in U.S. defense spending, there'll be this much in interest that has to be paid given the federal budget. Yeah. Or <clears throat> if all defense spending is to be... Uh, uh, paid without borrowed money, then there'll be this much increase in taxes. Yeah. Or the third option is, uh, you know, you don't increase taxes, you don't borrow money, so you have to cut other programs that the federal the government spends on, and there you have entitlements. Uh, do you want to see Medicare and Medicaid cut and, and similar programs? I'm sure some people will say yes. I think most people would not say find no, that. No. So, uh, so the issue of... Uh, the U.S. defense policy community think in terms of more, 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 I feel it has filtered down into American society at large, uh, where these fundamental trade-offs are not recognized in the same way. Uh, a lot of people don't seem to think that, you know, supporting the troops is great, but that money has to come from somewhere. And maybe you don't pay for it this generation. You know, even if you borrow the money, you still have to pay the debt, uh, interest rates in the interim. But... Uh, but you're just passing that to the next generation. And then you have issues like spending on infrastructure. Just recently, I was reading on reports of um, many Americans are not getting flood insurance. And floods are getting worse. Mm -hmm. And many scientists uh, attribute this to uh, the effects of climate change. Yes. And uh, got local governments are concerned that if people have, are uninsured and major floods happen, uh, that they won't have the money uh, or the resources that more generally to rebuild. So what happens? Are you going to have dire poverty? Or where are they going to live? You have all these issues. And who's going to pay for this? In many parts of the world, the central government. 
does something to help deal with this, but where is the money going to come from? The interest are expanding, I just mentioned. Also, uh, I was reading recently an interesting New York Times article on, which was comparing uh, seismic uh, uh, structural engineering standards to deal with earthquakes Yeah. in the U.S., comparing it to, like, say, the likes of Japan, even in parts of the U.S., which are earthquake-prone, like California, you know, famous for the San Andreas Fault is there, and San Francisco and Los Angeles, two massive cities uh, with many millions of people each in the metropolitan areas, and two of the, I mean, California is such a large chunk of the U.S. economy. It is. I'm sure the Central Valley provides agriculture, but <laughs> in dollar value, a lot of that is in, based in L.A. and in uh, San Francisco, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley. Yes. Uh, but anyway, that's all at risk to earthquakes, but uh, building codes are pretty lax, and a lot of it deals with the issue of who pays for it, and in terms of, uh, you know, if the government's not paying for it and not subsidizing it, and it's about short-term gains for, you know, and the losses for a low probability event. That had been forgotten. So anyway, I, I digress, but there are many issues uh, which the U.S. government could be channeling its money, but it is not. And uh, in a world of finite spending, something has to give. And for the past decade or so, for better or worse, it has largely been a bunch of social programs and forgone investment into uh, infrastructure, for example. Mm. That's a decades-long process, mm. which did not emerge overnight. Fair enough. I think that's a big concern. Um, and it's interesting because you would say that most people probably don't care too much about handling foreign policy threats and security threats, and they're definitely much more concerned with their everyday lives. But at least the politicians representing them have been quite supportive of uh, raising the defense budget, but probably if you ask among the members of the House and members of Congress who voted in favor of, you know, unprecedented increases in defense spending during uh, what is relatively peaceful times, uh, there a lot of them are much more keen on cutting social programs, even though their constituents might be much more, you know, say angry or displeased. That is certainly true amongst Republicans, Republican politicians, yes. Yes. But at the very least, I think there's a fair amount of central centrist Democrats that probably would not like to uh, would would see themselves as uh, people who believe in a balanced budget, right? Yes. Uh, the important thing for non-Americans to realize, I think, is that the, I mean, for all the history of the U.S. government and how this, you know, this uh, paragon of democracy it is claimed as a model for countries elsewhere. Uh, the single institution of the federal government, which has the highest trust of the American people based on numerous opinion, uh, 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 you know, considerable polling data, is the U.S. military. Okay. Yeah. Congress, I, I believe it's in single digits in the past few years, the number of Americans who are the service saying, how much like, or do you have confidence in the, in the Congress? Uh, the executive branch, of course, it's wildly political, so there's, it's hard to make sense of those numbers. But, uh, but the U.S. military, considerable support. The vast majority of Americans have faith in the U.S. military. So the U.S. military is a popular institution. Uh, and there's a lot of issues going on here. It's an all-volunteer all force. Uh, it is Military service is romanticized in, in many respects in the United States. It's not like, uh, even though it has been a war and thousands of Americans have died and have had their lives fundamentally transformed from terrible wounds, such as losing their limbs, uh, the resentment 
has turned been turned towards the politicians who got the U.S. into the wars, not the military itself, mm-hmm. which is a rather interesting situation when you compare it to other countries, for example, mm. where you know wartime casualties make the military itself unpopular. Uh, just due to the association of you know that that institution with the, you know all the uh, human cost of war, but uh, so the U.S. military is very popular. And so even for uh, Democrats who may wish to spend more on social security, mm. saying cut the defense budget is likely to be extremely controversial and best devoted. Now, uh, maybe to not increase the defense budget as much, mm, that's, you know, more likely. But uh, cutting is a big deal. Uh, the 2020 election is coming up, and then the Democratic primaries will be particularly interesting to watch to see uh, what each of the candidates says about defense policy. All of these individuals uh, seem to be willing to describe Russia as a threat, uh, as a threat to American democracy. Uh, not so much as a military threat, but uh, I'm not sure. Security policy in the U.S. distinguishes between those two issues. But uh, then there's the issue of China, etc. Do will these individuals, even if they perceive China to be a threat to the United States, which many of them seem to, will they call for uh, increasing the size of the Navy, for example, something which will invariably cost money? Uh, how will this affect their calls for, many of them have been calling for huge increases in social security spending, one way or another, infrastructural spending, spending uh, to support child care and education mm-hmm. reform, etc. All these programs will cost money. And it is unclear where that money is going to come from. The issue of the federal budget in the United States is complex. The sustainability of uh, running a deficit is a complex issue. The entire budgeting process is very complicated and uh, you know it has been on autopilot for years since they, they can't come to agreement on an actual budget yes uh, on a stable budget regime uh, but these are all issues and uh, what happens with a democratic party is going to be very interesting to see where which direction uh, they're going to take and this is of course assuming Mr. Trump does not get reelected uh, which but you know assuming that happens just for the sake of argument uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the Democrats do with mm-hmm. the defense budget. Yes. This is, a, I think you brought up an interesting aspect, is this whole great power competition um, between China, the United States, and also Russia and the United States. They come in different dynamics, right? So I think there's a lot of concern with Russia interfering in American elections, the political process. Yeah, I think depending on who you ask within the United States, the extent of which is very debatable. Um, That's become a very partisan issue. Yeah, yeah, it's become a very partisan issue. But also, I think uh, one of the key issues here is that you know the, the ways that Russia you know, interferes in American elections, say, is something that you can't really counter with a gigantic defense budget. And really, they what they do is something very specialized, and they play on domestic political divisions. Um, you know, through whatever it is, whether it is those influence operations done through the internet. Or whether it's, you know, if you believe that, uh, you know, some kind of uh, agents interacting with political actors within the United States as well, these all play against, you know, internal division, which probably would not be solved by uh, American defense policy. But at the same time, there's a lot of um, competition externally, right? In, in Syria, um, you know, Russia has a presence in Venezuela. Uh, Russia is a close ally of Iran. And uh, these are 
pain points, but also, uh, but on the other hand, the competition with China is also, you know, there's a very huge dependence dimension. But in certain cases, it's also about which is going to be, I guess, the leading country in the world, right? And this, you know, it's not just about a military competition. It's you know, somewhat reminiscent of the Cold War in that the Soviet Union was not only trying to prove itself to be a better military power, but also that you know, socialism was a superior ideology that they can create better economic outcomes. And if America is competing with China in this sense, then it becomes very troublesome if uh, all the money is suddenly being poured into defense, rather than say, you know, creating a better life for its citizens. The issue of uh, the Russia policies—it's very interesting, very complicated. Uh, I like to think of this as a good example of a chicken and egg problem in security mm-hmm. policy. Yeah. Uh, do you start looking at this relationship in 2016 with election mm-hmm. hacking? Because if you do, you're missing out a lot of background. You are, yes. Uh, but where do you start? Uh, arguably, you can go, you know, to the Bolshevik Revolution at least. And I think most people would agree that that's probably the most perfect path that you should go. But if you start there, then like it's too much. This maybe well, not. It's, it's too much, but uh, I mean, Soviet policy was shaped by the Western reaction. That's the Bolshevik Revolution. You, you can't separate that. Even if you start in forty-five or forty-nine or any time in the early post-Cold uh, post-Second World War period, do you start then? Was the demise of the Soviet Union a fundamental break in the past? Many people seem to think no. Uh, a good number of uh, politically influential Russians seem to think no. That but there was surely during the Yeltsin years there was a significant break. There was, but then the government changed. Mr. Putin comes to power, and over you know the next decade or so, tensions reemerge. Then there's the nuclear realm, uh, which is you know in, even today, uh, it's its own world, but it's intimately related. It has this mm-hmm. uh, itself. It's a chicken and egg issue. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do tensions in the nuclear realm reflect other tensions, uh, non-nuclear tensions, or is it the other way around? And I think the jury's out on that one, but it seems to be both mechanisms at play. Anyway, uh, so yeah, the Russia policy is uh, very interesting, and as you said correctly, uh, in my view, uh, it is unclear how any increase in the DOD budget will help deal with election hacking. Uh, I'd go further and say it's unclear... I mean, yes, Venezuela and Syria are pressure points for Russia in a sense, but I'm not sure how the U.S. military is going to be the solution there, so to speak. And even then, how does that resolve the election hacking and political interference? If anything, it might incentivize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to deter an action here, election hacking and political interference, when the most straightforward way to do it is to threaten Russia itself but threatening Russia itself is too costly, too dangerous, and too complicated, particularly given nuclear weapons, and this gets back to the whole chicken egg problem uh, on so many levels. Uh, so instead, you have all these sideshows, and although the sideshows are in part done to give the appearance that something is happening, uh, because they are, as I said, mm-hmm. the sideshows, I think, I think it's a fair characterization, uh, the sideshows nonetheless uh, impact the relationship and make things worse. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't call this a spiral per se. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it's such a dynamic and radical process. Uh, 
but uh, interesting issues there. The China angle is also fascinating. Uh, it is unclear to me what exactly the U.S. government's long-term goals of China are. Uh, that, of course, is uh, not a surprising thing to say, given the Trump administration's track record of not really having very concrete policy goals. Uh, they are, you know, vague and abstract, like being the greatest country in the world, strongest military, blah, blah. But uh, more concrete goals are largely unstated. You know, what does the... F- what does the U.S. government want the future of the U.S.-China relationship to be like in the economic sphere, on the uh, intellectual property sphere, on the security uh, in the security sphere, the naval naval balance, for example, uh, the issue of Taiwan and its future. How long does the U.S. want to hold out on this? Just a few days ago, reports came out that there's a new arms deal between the U.S. and Taiwan yeah. in the works. Uh, this seems to be very disjointed. Like there's a lot of developments going on, trade policy, security policy. <coughs> But the end goal is unclear, uh, other than in very vague and abstract terms. I mean, I think the end goal is to stay number one, isn't it? But they, I don't think they figure out. Well, that's not exactly a strategy. That's, I don't want to say hope, but more a goal than a strategy. Yeah, it's a goal. Because there is no prioritization. It's like to do what to get. I would argue they don't have a strategy around that uh, yet. Because if you try to answer the question, how do you stay ahead? That's a very, yes, very I, hard I thing mean, to Usually answer. you can think of strategy as, you know, the application of means and pursuit of ends. Uh, but I'm not sure staying number one is an end in itself. It, it is, of course, in an abstract sense, but that's assuming like a, a theory that being the most powerful gets you, gets you all you want, whatever it is that you want. And I'm not sure that's always the case. I'm not sure if there's anything at the end of the line there besides being number one, right? Because if you think about what the competition is about, surely if it's worth quality of life, then it's not worth sacrificing all these defense factors. But the way you just framed it right now would suggest that uh, it might be about status. Yeah, right. Or prestige is important, of course. Status and prestige, such yeah, dynamics. Yeah. Uh, yes. And that is probably part of the story, but I don't think that's all the story. I don't think any single explanation is all the story. That's true. And that's what makes this more complicated, as of so many other fields of inquiry. Uh, particularly, you know, when so much of the information is classified in the indivi- minds of individuals, and given the, na- the nature of U.S. democracy, uh, foreign security policy changes every four to eight years, at least. And it is not at all common for a single administration to have major reviews mm-hmm. of foreign security policy in response to international events. Uh, the goals are there; they are vague and abstract, as I described them. I'm not until you have concrete goals. It is logically speaking very difficult to have concrete policy options. Right. And as long as you don't have that, uh, you have to keep responding to changes in the world. Uh, that doesn't help you attain goals. Couldn't you say that during the Cold War, the United States have a very defined purpose? Yes, but most Americans also look at the world in much more black and white terms. Hmm. Even amongst the greatest China hawks, the world is not so much black and white. That's true. Uh, There is zero-sum thinking on the security and economic front, for sure. But uh, that notion of... uh, you know, a zero-sum ideological contest in which one political system survives and the other would subjugate the other. That isn't there. Not not yet, anyway. Not mainstream, anyway. There are some people who fantasize about reliving that experience, the Cold War again. Yeah, I think there's a lot of China hawks, be... especially, probably, you know, 
people that are newer to the scene, right? Yes, the yeah. younger generation. Uh, there was an interesting discussion about this uh, in for the Journal of Foreign Affairs uh, several months ago. And it seems that uh, there's been a generational handover, so to speak, in responsibilities amongst older China hands in the U.S. government who experienced the China that they knew, that they got to know early in their careers, was a poor, isolated China, only, you know, just connecting with the world and the world economy. Mm -hmm. uh, this was not a China that was that looked 10 feet tall or looked like it was going to be 10 feet tall anytime soon. Uh, this was a China that was dependent and the U.S. seemed more capable of uh, influencing China's trajectory, shall we say. The current younger generation, this is not the China they know. No. The China they know is fast-growing militarily and economically. It is increasingly assertive in their eyes. It keeps doing things that the U.S. finds unacceptable, island-building self-genocide, etc. And they don't see the U.S. as having much effect on shaping China's trajectory other than through rever aggressivism, or what's called bellicose actions, such as restrictions on uh, technology transfer, uh, increased security competition, reinforcement of American alliances, which are you know, almost certain to provoke China, etc. That's true. Yeah, I, I definitely think that uh, the generational experience of, of countries doesn't what uh, definitely changes things, and I think it's uh, been a pretty good discussion. Anything uh, you want to talk about to wrap things up? No, well, we had a pretty good tour de force. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. Went from Venezuela to Iran and uh, the great power competition with the United States. Yeah, they all revolve around the Trump administration right now. Yes. Which uh, says a lot about the nature of security policy in uh, international politics. For good and for, for ill. Yes. Uh, it, well, the United States is the dominant power and uh, the Trump administration has been a very big disruption and so found to be very impactful in international security affairs. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure having you, Likewise. and uh, you know, thank you for coming all the way here in London to uh, give this talk. And uh, it's great seeing you, and uh, always a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you.